Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Good evening. My name's Carl. I'm an alcoholic. Enjoyed that, Scott. I don't know if I'm a good the good speaker. I'm just from farther away. That's... That's all that means. That's all that means in Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to thank uh, Mark for asking me to, to come here tonight. Uh, I want to thank my friends Rana and John for coming. John came all the way up from Olympia to pick me up and bring me over here. So that's a big deal. Anyway, I am, uh, before I get going, I, uh, I've just had a really profound 48 hours. I'm, I'm originally from Seattle. Both my parents are buried here. And in the last, 36 hours or so, 36, 48 hours. I've had some experiences that just have made me profoundly grateful. And they are just, I guess maybe some people think are everyday experiences, but I was standing for the very first time in front of my mother's and father's grave together. Right? I've been to my father's grave many times in the 20 years that he, since he passed away. But my mother passed away just before COVID. And they are now, they are buried together. And for the very first time, I stood in front of both of them. And then, this morning at 5 a.m., I was on a Zoom meeting where my sponsor, who just took 54 years yesterday, uh, was reading Chapter 5. And I don't know about you, but listening to your sponsor read Chapter 5, just the voice, because you have such a history and so much feeling towards that, his voice just came through that computer and just rattled my soul. And so grateful for the history of 54 years of sobriety. And then, right in the middle of that, I realized this is Bill W.'s sobriety date. Today's the date that this is the reason we all get to sit here tonight. And I've just sort of, I was sitting in a dorky little hotel room having an experience. <laughs> and uh, just thought I'd let you know that. Um, the most important thing that I can tell you about myself and who I am, and that's in the very first sentence that I said when I got when I got up here, and that's, my name's Carl, I'm an alcoholic. There is absolutely nothing more important in my life than that I'm a sober alcoholic. I know, if you're brand new, you're thinking, dude, you need to get a life. It's really not the high point. It's not something I'm bragging about. I'm kind of trying to tolerate it. But really, it is the center point of who I am. You can't even begin to describe who Carl without very first saying he's a sober alcoholic. The reason I believe I'm an alcoholic is really very simple. <clears throat> the reason I believe I'm an alcoholic is because I've got a really bizarre relationship with alcohol. That's why I'm an alcoholic. No other reason. I've just got a really strange relationship with alcohol. And the strange relationship that I have with alcohol takes on a few forms. Uh, the first part of this strange relationship that I have with alcohol happens when I drink it. A really strange thing happens when I drink booze, and our book calls it an allergic reaction. And the book says the symptom of this allergic reaction that I get when I drink alcohol is what they refer to as something called the phenomenon of craving. And the best way that I can describe this thing that the book calls the phenomenon of craving in my life is that it seems like whenever I drink booze, the more booze I drink, the thirstier I get. It's really weird. It does not happen with anything else that I drink, just booze. Uh... As an example of that, I've got this bottle of water. Uh, Amber was kind enough to have this cooler of water. Have you, you guys all seen Amber's sweater? Have you shown everybody 
what that does? No, not yet. You got to ask her about her sweater. She was kind enough to give me this bottle of water. And over the next 45 minutes to four hours that I'm talking with you, just, just checking to see if you're listening. Over the next 45 minutes that I'm talking with you, I'll probably drink half this bottle. I don't know. But, you know, probably before I finish the night, I'm going to finish this bottle of water. But I can absolutely swear to you that once I finish this bottle of water, I am not going to go get a case of water and lock myself in a cheap motel room. Right? There is no chance that I'll be texting John or Mark, man, I need another case, man. I need the case. Come on, come on. Right? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But if that was the only thing that made me alcoholic, this bizarre physical reaction that I get, this, this, this craving, if that was the only thing that made me alcoholic, well then, just say no would have wiped out alcoholism. Right? Early 80s, Nancy Reagan came out and said, just say no. If that would have worked, I would have. And I imagine you would have gone, oh, no. And just gone on and lived a happy, successful life just saying no. But I've got this other strange part of my relationship with alcohol. And what's really strange about this part of my relationship with alcohol is that it happens when I'm not drinking. This is the part of my relationship to alcohol that just used to devastate, confuse, and break the hearts of everybody who loved me, cared about me, or who counted on me. Our book calls this the mental obsession. They also refer to it as the strange mental blank spot or the thought process that precedes the first drink. Scott described it beautifully, right? That voice that just chews away at you, just chews away at you. Best way that I can describe this thing that the book calls the mental obsession in my life is it seems like no matter how much pain and suffering my last drunk caused, and it doesn't matter whether it caused you the pain and suffering or me the pain and suffering, doesn't matter. No matter how much pain and suffering my last drunk caused, my mind would always paint a picture that made it okay for me to take another drink at all costs. My mind would always rationalize and justify my walk back to the next drink under all conditions. So therefore, because of these two components of my relationship to alcohol, number one, I cannot drink successfully because of this unquenchable thirst that happens when I drink. I can't drink successfully. But at the very same time, I cannot not drink successfully. I'm damned if I do, and I'm damned if I don't. It's the ultimate catch-22 we call alcoholism. Because I swear to you, if I could do either one of those two things, either drink successfully or on my own not drink successfully, I would do that. Ah, oh, crap, I just lied. In conversations with Mark and over the last... A uh, few weeks before I came up, he's, you know, giving me instructions. Hi, honey. <laughs> I love, don't, don't worry about that. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, I, uh, uh, talking to Mark, he said, you know, this is where you're, you know, hotel, flight, blah, blah. But Carl, don't lie. And now I'm six minutes into this and I've lied to you already. I would not drink successfully even if I could. I used to think I wanted to drink, drink successfully, but I was ill-informed as to what drinking successfully was. The reason I was ill-informed as to what drinking successfully was is because I had never done it. But now at 34 years of sobriety and 60 years old, I have read about successful drinking and I've witnessed it in a number of people. 
So I'm going to report to you what I found out drink, drinking successfully is, and let's see if you're interested in it. <laughs> apparently, apparently drinking successfully entails approximately two drinks and stopping. Let that sink in for a second. Two drinks <laughs> and stop. Just makes me nervous thinking about it. I, I just want to, right? I would rather all of you scream obscenities at me for the next hour rather than for me to be caught in a situation where I have two drinks in me and I can't get any more. That is literally a nightmare scenario. I said this. I'm going to harp on that physical feature a little bit more because it's one thing we, bar none, we all have in common. Because, you know, really, our stories, if you're new or fairly new and you're waiting to hear your story, you might not. Really, you might not. Uh, simply because Alcoholics Anonymous is a huge, wide cross section of society. Every single race, creed, color, religion, social and economic background, types of families, every, you know, we're very different. You can see that just by going to different parts of Seattle. I live in Southern California. You just drive 15 minutes down the freeway and the meeting looks very different. And I guarantee you right here in this room, we're different. Right here in this room, it's very possible that we have the bank president, a bank teller, and a bank robber all right here in the very same room. It's, it's very possible. We drink differently than each other too. We really do. If you listen closely when people tell their stories in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, you'll see that we drink differently than each other. To illustrate that, let's imagine this. Let's imagine we crack open those big side doors and we wheel in a giant cart right in the center of the room. And then on that cart, we got all the kinds of booze we all love, right? If you're a top shelf, expensive drinker, we got it. Remy Martin Cavassier, fine, we got it. If you're a bottom shelf drinker, we got that too. Mad Dog 2020. There's always a couple of people that salivate in the back row. Yeah, <clears throat> Mad Dog. Class A hallucinogenic is what it is, right? So, and we got everything in between, right? And if we all took a good four or five stiff drinks, real drinks, no umbrellas in there, no mixer, but good four or five solid drinks, we'd all be acting very, very differently, right? Over in this corner, we'd have the good time crowd. Ah, ha, 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 woohoo, party, party, talk, 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 woohoo. You know, let's go to the next bar, talk, 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 add a little methamphetamine, talk a little faster, talk, 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 right? But we're having a good time over in that corner. Over in that corner, we'd have the criers. You know, then they get a little drunk. Like, <laughs> over in that corner, we'd have the fighters. You know, them getting a little drunk, got to fight, fight. Over in this corner, a bunch of us would be naked. <laughs> I personally would be visiting the other three corners, trying to find a couple of friends to come over here with me. Just the way I get, just the way I get. So our stories are different based upon which corner we're drinking in, right? In the good time corner, you get a lot of DUIs, right? Got to go to the next bar, next bar. After hours, we're going to Joe's house. Come on, pick up the booze right there. We're out on the road. We get arrested a lot. Over in the sobbing corner, they don't get arrested. They don't even leave the damn house, right? Worst thing they do is they call you at 2 a.m. Or God forbid, these days, they do drunk Facebooking. Right? Right over in the fighting corner, you know, mom's putting up the house for, for uh, bail and paying for attorneys and court dates and yeah, blah, blah, right? So our stories are very different depending on what corner we're in. 
But no matter which corner we're in, there's one thing we would all be doing if we're alcoholics of the type described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's one thing we would all be doing. We would all be back at that cart for another drink. It's really important for me to understand that when I, when they said, look, listen for the similarities rather than the differences. Because if I, if I try to listen and compare myself based upon what kind of family you grew up in, how old you are, how young you are, are you male or female, are you what, you know, uh, what, what, what religion did we grow, what area of the world did you grow up? You know, I don't know, it's hit or miss. But if I listen to what happens to you when you drink, and almost more importantly, what happens to you when on your own you try not to drink, I'm you, you're me. I can identify with anybody in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous when I'm listening for that. I set this relationship up with alcohol that I dis- described to you right from the get-go when I first started drinking. I started drinking very late compared to most people. Uh, in AA, I was 11. It's uh, kind of late. We uh, lived here in Seattle. I grew up in Ballard. I look like I grew up in Ballard, though, don't I? Yeah. 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 (laughs) And a typical morning in seventh grade for me, I'd show up early for school, not for study hall or anything, but to uh, meet my new friends at the very edge of the school property, loser's corner. Every school's got a loser's corner. It's about 10 feet off of the school property. It's kind of the way AA is treating their smokers these days. You go all the way out there now, right? And we'd be out there smoking cigarettes, and we'd also have what I like to call the, the playground cocktail. That is a jar full of whatever, whatever we could rip off out of the parents' liquor cabinet the night before. And that jar is kind of scary because nobody, nobody's been to bartending school yet at 12 years old, right? And when you're ripping off out of the parents', parents' liquor cabinet, you're just grabbing whatever's up there. Try to get it in, the, in there. So in that jar, there's like equal amounts of whiskey, vodka, cream de mint, vermouth, all in there. And you can imagine this 12-year-old <laughs> choking that down in in uh, in the early morning, and of course it was the early 70s, so we're smoking that commercial pot. Anybody remember that stuff? Four-finger lids, $10 a bag, seeds and stems and the whole bit. And it was even before Ziploc baggies were invented, when it would just be a regular Glad sandwich bag. And as you'd roll it up, there'd be like nine people spit on it. You're like, oh, hmm. And you put all those seeds and stems and leaves into a home- homemade pipe, maybe made out of plumbing fittings and a screen. Or if we were really desperate that morning, it would be a toilet paper roll with aluminum foil and pinholes in it. Were you guys there too? That's why you're here. By the time I'm 14, my hair is down onto my shoulders and my vocabulary was, whoa. Wow. Hey, man. I'd call my mother man. Hey, man. And my parents, really good people, and I mean, they just were absolutely dumbfounded as to what happened to their son, and they had no idea that I was alcoholic. So what do they do? They try to restrict me from people, places, and things. If we can get him away from that group of kids he's hanging out with, things get better. And get him out of that damn public school system, things get better. Get him into the private school system. They tried all of the above. But I'm an alcoholic. My problems are not based upon people, places, and things. My problems are based upon my physical and mental relationship to alcohol. See, if you change the people, place, and things in somebody's life like mine, all that happens is that I'm loaded with different people in different places, ruining different things. That's all that happens. By the time I was uh, 18, I barely scraped out of the public school system after I, got, after I got kicked out of the private school system, and my parents decided that Seattle was the problem. Now, everybody in the Seattle area gets this next stroke. When I'm in other parts of the country, they don't quite get it, so listen. My parents thought that my drinking was because I was in Seattle, <clears throat> So they sent me across state to Washington State University. (laughs) 
<laughs> right? <laughs> you guys get the insanity of that. And I spent three years at that university on my parents' money, and I got almost 10 credits. I, uh, at any given time, my grade point average matched my blood alcohol content about a .25. I did nothing at that school. I don't even think I passed my bowling class. Uh, by the time I was 22, this little story I'm about to tell you will let you know exactly where I stood with my family. Now, my father was Swedish. My mother was Icelandic. Therefore, I look like a polar bear or that I look like I'm from Ballard. And the... Uh, and I don't know whether this custom I'm about to tell you about is Scandinavian or whether it's Lutheran. I don't know. But at Christmas time, my parents wouldn't just send out Christmas cards to their friends and relatives. My parents would send out this big, long Christmas letter that said everything the family had been doing that year. And when I was about 22, I got a hold of one of these letters that had been sent out the previous Christmas. And as I read it, it let me know exactly where I stood with my family. Now, the first paragraph talked about what my parents had been doing that year. Another impressive year, I'm sure. The next paragraph talked about what the Morris children had been doing that year, and that paragraph went something like this. Our oldest daughter, Christina, just graduated from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, with a master's degree in human resources. She's now working for a large pharmaceutical company in the Midwest. She traveled to Europe this summer. She saw this. She saw that. Her hobbies are this, this, and this. She's a very happy young woman. We are very proud of her. Our oldest son, Eric, just graduated from Western Washington State University with a degree in marketing. He's now working for a large advertising firm here in downtown Seattle. He loves to golf. He loves to travel. He's engaged to be married to this wonderful woman named Mary Lou, who works for a very small company here in Seattle named <laughs> Microsoft. It was small at one time. And they love to golf together. They love to travel together. He's a very happy young man. We are very proud of him. Our youngest son, Carl, just turned 22. That was kind of long story short, it, it would literally take till breakfast to describe everything that happened over the next 15 months. So I just really like to, I just, I'm going to condense 15 months into one sentence. A really bad night happened, so I joined the Navy. It was a bad night. What I'm about to tell you should concern you if you care anything about the security of the United States. But on my way into the Navy, I passed a potential test. It's called the ASVAP test. And this test that I took qualified me to become a nuclear engineer. That should concern you that the United States Navy would have any type of system in place that even maybe, possibly, or even remotely would allow somebody like me near anything nuclear. However, however, the Navy made me take another test when I showed up at that base for boot camp, and I could not pass that particular test. Uh, that test is called a urinalysis test, is what it's called. <laughs> I never knew how to study for those things. Should have been kicked out. Long uh, series of events uh, allowed me to stay in the Navy. They took away the two-year nuclear school. They sent me directly out to the fleet. And now I'm out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on a Spruance-class destroyer. Our mission is to 
guard the 200-mile uh, treaty radius uh, uh, from Russian nuclear submarines, and we're, we're doing like Tom Clancy's type, type stuff, triangulation and dropping depth charges and sonar pinging and all of this with 200 miles off, and it's really very interesting, not quite like a Tom Clancy, no, but close. And I, you know what, I started to learn a lot of things that a young man is supposed to learn when he enters the military. I started to understand the camaraderie of being in the military. I understood the honor of serving one's country. I started to learn a trade. All great things for a young man to under, start understand, uh, start uh, experiencing. I was 23, 24, 25 years old. But I wasn't paying attention to my alcoholism. And, of course, I, I might do well when the ship's out at sea, but that ship would pull into a port. And I would, of course, take a drink. And I literally would trigger off these two, sometimes three, every once in a while, four-day drunks. I don't know how to stop them once I start. And I got to tell you, the Navy puts a high premium on showing back up where the ship was before it leaves again. <laughs> they're big on that. They're kind of, they're as big on that as AA is about not drinking. You know, but AA is old, unbelievably forgiving about the not drinking. We say, that's okay. Come on in. We love you. Love you. Try again. Navy, they get pretty upset. There's no forgiveness here. And I got to tell you, it's a very strange feeling coming out of one of those three, four day drunks finding myself on a large pier in a foreign country, 6 a.m., going, <clears throat> there was a destroyer here the other day. <clears throat> I've been in the Navy approximately two years at this point, and I came to in a cheap motel room in San Diego. I would started drinking on a Thursday. It's now Monday. I wake up in that familiar horror, just <sighs> and I get, get into my car, and I start racing back to the, uh, down to the 32nd Street base where my ship was, and I'm late again and uh my car is held together with rubber bands you know the you know the old joke my car is dying of alcoholism right along with me and one of the tools for living i had, had put together to during the end of uh, a drunk these days i would always save a pint for the end of each drunk and i would try to down that before i'd get back to the ship and that particular morning i'm paying more attention to getting that pint in me than where the car was going and all of a sudden at the front of every navy base there's a marine who stands duty in this guard shack this is pre 911 security's high but nothing like it is now but there to be a marine in the guard shack and you under normal circumstances you're supposed to slowly and politely pull your vehicle up to that guard shack you're supposed to show that man your military id he will check the sticker on your car if everything's in order he'll allow you to proceed onto the base as I said that particular morning, I'm paying more attention to getting that half a pint in me than where the car is going. All of a sudden, my eyes came, started to come into focus, and I saw the Marine had his head out of the guard shack like, and I'm wondering, what's he so excited about? And until I look down, and I'm going 40 miles an hour, and I'm about literally from here to Mark. And I tried to swerve, and the car hit this uh, cement median on the right-hand side and flipped over and bang, right through that guard shack. And I can still see that in my mind's eye. I can still see that Marine doing this big dive out of there. Thank God those guys are in good shape. I mean, this guy just did a quick somersault. He's back up, weapon drawn. And it was one of these mornings. God, I hated these mornings where there's a lot of broken glass and metal and people screaming and sirens going off and people running in all circles. And they're all pointing to me like, this is my fault. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of wondering whose fault it is, too. And I'm like, what's going on? I hated those mornings. And then I, later that morning, I also hated this type of morning where I'm in a hospital bed and I'm handcuffed to the hospital bed. I hated that. I mean, you're in serious, serious trouble and injured. It's just like a bad morning, right? And that morning, the Navy doctors are uh, 
maybe uh, my superiors are reading new charges on me, and this is nothing significant. That's what happens in a guy's life, like mine, about every 90 days. So new charges, nothing significant. But that morning, the most significant thing that happened is the Navy doctors prescribed this stuff called antabuse for me, and they sent this uh, the orders back to my ship, and every morning I was now under orders to show up at sick bay every single morning before quarters, and I have to sit in a chair and stick my tongue out. <laughs> And the hospital corpsman would put this little white pill on my tongue and make me sit there for a half an hour to make sure it actually ingested in my system. Over the next seven to ten days, I started to experience the most cunning, baffling, and powerful side of this thing we call alcoholism, and that is I had no alcohol in my system. But I start to slowly, literally go insane. See, ever since I've been a young teenager, there was always times when parents, college uh, counselors, now the military would take alcohol away from me. Say, you cannot have that, you know, fig literally or figuratively, take alcohol away from me. And I would often be put in front of well-meaning, highly educated people, some sort of therapist, counselor, psychologist, psychiatrist, chaplains. And they'd all want to talk to me about me. The gist of the conversation would always be, why do you do this? Why are you willing to pay a price for a drink like that? Or they all literally were just had their own version of saying, what's the matter with you? If I would have had the vocabulary that I have now that you guys have given me, I would have said to these well-meaning, highly educated people, I would have said, I know, I know it looks crazy that, that I'm willing to pay this price for another drink. I know, I know it looks crazy. I get it. But... But if you knew how I felt when I wasn't drinking, you wouldn't be asking me why I drink. See, there's only one thing worse than the price I'm paying for my drinking, and that's the way that I feel when I'm not drinking. And I don't know how to tell anybody that, especially myself. But in that, in that feeling, I'm actually defining my alcoholism. I lasted 10 days on that abuse, and I went AWOL from my ship. That's absent without leave. That's illegally leaving your ship. That's a Navy frowns on that, too. I disappeared and I locked myself in a little motel room in downtown San Diego Plaza Hotel. It's on 4th and Broadway. It's actually still there. This is May of 1986 and the Plaza Hotel cost $13 a night back in May of 1986. I checked, I checked about a year and a half ago. They've done a little rehab of it. It's now $19 a night. It's a fine establishment. You should check the Yelp reviews. And I locked myself in that little room and I had a bottle of vodka and a shot glass. And I remember sitting on the edge of the bed looking at that bottle of vodka and shot glass on this rickety little end table. And as I stared at the bottle of vodka, I remembered that the Navy doctors had given me a very stern warning about drinking on top of antibuse. They had told me, son, you need to understand that if you drink on top of antibuse, you will get one of two reactions. One reaction is you will get violently ill. Son, you also need to understand the other reaction you might get is you might die. I remember looking at that bottle and I thought... <clears throat> Well, I wonder which reaction I'm going to get. <laughs> so I took one. You see, Ron has heard me like 10 times, but still laugh. I appreciate that so much. <laughs> so I took one shot. And nothing happened. Authority had lied to me again as far as I was concerned. I waited about two minutes just to make sure. And I took another shot. All of a sudden, I felt tingling in the face, so I looked at this cracked little mirror that was in this hotel room, and I was bright red, blotchy and purple in places. Hmm. Took another shot. All of a sudden, I could feel my heart going boom, 
boom, boom. Looked at my shirt. I was drenched and sweating, and all of a sudden, I'm like, <gasps> hyperventilating. <gasps> We're doing all right so far. <laughs> There's something wrong with you if you think this is funny. I got to tell you. <laughs> I took another shot, and up it came. My second sponsor was a man named Eddie Cochran. Yeah, uh, literally one of the pioneers of Southern California Alcoholics Anonymous. His sobriety date was December 2nd, 1951. Meant this past December 2nd, he would have been 70 years sober had he lived. He called the next thing that happened to me projectile regurgitation. This is a new level of puking I'm unfamiliar with, right? Because we all know normal puking. It's one of the tools for living we get out there, right? We all learn how to be out there in the middle of a good drunk. You just kind of go, ah! and then you're just right back in the conversation, right? It's only them that think puking is the end of the night, right? We just learn how to, it's, you know, you got to keep going. You got to learn. But here on the abuse, it was different, man. It was like, Hurr! sort of like this Linda Blair spray across the room. Thank God the Plaza Hotel is the type of hotel room where the toilet is in the same room with the bed. It's a design feature, I believe, maybe to make convicts feel more at home upon release. I'm not really sure. But I found the magic of drinking on top of anabuse, and that is if you hang in there. And that's a very important aspect of drinking on top of anabuse. You cannot half measure it. In fact, in fact, if you're going to drink on top of anabuse, you may need to reach down deep inside yourself for a level of commitment you might not even know you have. And I found that if I kept drinking and kept puking and kept drinking and kept puking for about an hour to an hour and a half, enough of the antibiotics would kick out of my system and I'd quit throwing up and I would just be left with red face, hyperventilating and sweating, and I'm all right with that. So I drank, I drank on top of antibiotics the last seven months of my drinking. The only words to describe this are desperation drinking. My second to my last drunk, I was left for dead in a motel parking lot in, a, in an area of San Diego called National City. And I was in a pool of blood. All I remember is I was on the outside stairwell of a hotel, you know, outside stairwell gives you the picture of the type of hotel. And then there was just a lot of fists were flying that they were apparently not mine. And then there was a lot of blood that apparently was mine. And the next thing that I knew is I come to it and I, I look up and I'm on an, I'm on an operating table, men and women with surgical masks, right? And that's when we, when we come to out of blackouts, the purpose of looking around is to see was it a good night or a bad night? And here in 1986, if you come to and you see men and women with surgical masks, that means it's a bad night. Now, I know now you come to see surgical masks. It's just Tuesday, not a big deal, right? I also got a little... Fr there was one little aspect of Alcoholics Anonymous that frustrated me about you, the way you guys were describing coming out of blackouts. You know, I don't hear it very often anymore, but I used, sure used to hear this in the late 80s and the 90s where people would get up and say... I'm just so grateful to be sober because I now wake up instead of coming to. It was just so horrible out there. I'd come out of a blackout and I'd come to and look next to me and ah, as if you were always the good looking one. There's always two sides of that story. And the reason it offended me is too many times in my life I'd come to and I'd look next to me and go, oh, I like her. She would come to and go, oh, not Carl, no, and run right out. Wasn't good for my self-esteem, you know. <laughs> my last night of drinking, I'm being led out of the San Diego jail, being transferred from the civilian authorities back to the military authorities. Handcuffs are extra tight. Neck muscles are not working well. I'm being led around, you know, those types of mornings. Go here, go there. And 
They tried to bring, bring me back to my ship, and that morning the officer deck put his arm up and said, wrong answer. Orders have already been processed on this loser, and the orders are 90 days in the brig, bad conduct discharge. Then he kind of had this disgusted look on his face. He said, <clears throat> or treatment. And I remember kind of going, hmm? Now, it wasn't because I thought treatment was a good idea. I didn't even know what it was. All I knew is that thing that he called treatment sounded like something that possibly could help me with the inevitable new charges that were coming my way. I now know that it wouldn't have mattered what I was thinking or feeling that morning because I was in handcuffs. And I don't know about your experience in handcuffs, but my experience was always the same. Whoever had me in handcuffs, never once did they ever turn to me and say, so what's your opinion on what happens next? Right? When you're in handcuffs, you go where they say. And they took me up to a military treatment center, and when the doors were locked behind me, that's when they took those handcuffs off me. And i got to tell you, that wasn't the first time in my life that society, the, the society I'm supposed to be living in and contributing to, and the country I'm supposed to be serving, is only willing to take the handcuffs off me when the doors are locked behind me. That's who I am without Alcoholics Anonymous. That's that's what I can accomplish with my life, what I've just told you, without Alcoholics Anonymous. Spent 45 days in this military treatment center, and i got to tell you, as far as treatment centers go, the United States Navy in the late 1980s and, and through the 1990s had a first-class treatment center. It's not because they had some sort of new way to gently detox the body. <clears throat> no. They had us run three miles a day, you know, with Marines screaming at you, 150 push-ups, 150 sit-ups, and they scream, Move it! Going to become a goddamn fighting man again! Then they put you into uh, therapy in the afternoon and say, how do you feel? <laughs> so that wasn't it. The reason I think they were first class is four to five nights a week, white vans would pull up in front of those barracks. Five or six of us would get into each one of those vans, and those vans would come to you. And we would sit in the back row of these large meetings in Southern California, and we got to witness Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't know we were just watching Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know there was a difference between watching Alcoholics Anonymous and being in Alcoholics Anonymous. But, you know, while I'm in that military treatment center, I watched Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got to tell you, enough happens by just watching Alcoholics Anonymous for identification to happen. And that's what had to happen right off the bat. I remember this feeling of, as you guys were telling your stories, what was different this time is I wasn't put in front of well-meaning, highly educated people who wanted to talk to me about me. I was put in front of you guys. And you didn't want to talk to me about me. You guys only talked about yourselves on and on and on about yourselves. Just like I'm doing tonight. Just on and on and on about yourself. But there was something about the way you talked about yourself that I got this feeling, I call it kind of a lean forward moment in my life, kind of like, oh my God, they know. They know. They know. Now, if you would have been sitting next to me and said, okay, kid, what is it that they know that you think you know? I would have gone, I don't know. But they know. And that's that was identification. I was identifying with the way you were describing your relationship to alcohol and your relationship to the world. And uh, I got out of that military treatment center 45 days of sobriety. It was a Friday afternoon. Don't ask me what, uh, what Navy clerk made this mistake, but I didn't need to be back to my ship till Monday. One would think dangerous, 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 and indeed dangerous. But you know what? Something had happened to me in there that I instinctually went straight to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I left that treatment center, and I barely even pulled over to get a pack of cigarettes. I just... Boom, right to this meeting hall, 
And what was so great is I knew where that meeting hall was because they'd taken us there a couple of times. And I went straight to this meeting hall. I went to the 6 p.m. gong show meeting in Pacific Beach. And I'm sitting in the back of this 6 o'clock meeting. It's big, lively beach meeting uh, in a hall about this size, about this many people. And before the meeting started, this guy spotted me, right, and came be- kind of beelining across the room and said, hey, kind of, kind of scared me, like, whoa, were those, those are the chips, huh? Oh, shoot. I didn't think I had that much on right? So, yeah, scared you, didn't I? <clears throat> and that's what happened. It scared me, right? And he said, never seen you before. What are you doing? Right? And, and since he startled me, I, I accidentally told him the truth. I uh, didn't give me a second to think in order to come up with a lie. And I go, I don't know what I'm doing. I just got out of the Navy treatment center. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. This guy's eyes went, bing, big smile went across his face. He looked at me like he had just hit the jackpot in Las Vegas. That sounded like a jackpot in Vegas, too, didn't it? I didn't realize that I had just established myself as the holy grail of Alcoholics Anonymous, a newcomer who accidentally admits he doesn't know what he's doing, right? So at the break of the meeting, he's fighting his friends off that we're also trying to talk. No, he's mine. He's mine. I got this guy. I got this guy. I found out there was something in particular going on in this guy's life that particular Friday night that made him especially glad to meet me. This guy's girlfriend had left him the night before for one of his friends in his home group. I know. He was wondering what he was going to do with his weekend homicide, suicide, get loaded, or grab this newcomer. He's like all over me all weekend. We went to like 18 meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And this guy was crazy over this woman, right? In between each one of these meetings, he'd throw him in the passenger side of his car. He'd start driving, and he'd start yelling. He wouldn't even look at the road. He had like one of those AA radar cars that just makes it to the next meeting. And he'd be yelling at me. you got to go to me. He's got to read the book. you got to get sponsored. Damn her. Got to go to me. He's got to read the book. Damn. And he's like spitting on me. I was like, Jesus. Now, I didn't know it, but I was getting a very early introduction to your typical AA relationship breakup is what I was getting. But I'm so very glad that that guy that night in his pain was a guy in Alcoholics Anonymous who had done the work of Alcoholics Anonymous. And therefore, he understood that the solution to his pain was out of self, out of self, out of self. By going to so many meetings in the same area of town with that guy, I learned something really valuable about how we go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, especially when we're new. What I learned, you see, I saw other people that were at multiple meetings over that weekend. I didn't see anybody else doing 18 meetings, just me and that guy. But I saw other people that were at two or three meetings over that weekend. And what I learned, I'm going to correlate it to a football game. I didn't know that uh, Santa Claus was a Seahawks fan. I'm happy to find that out. My son will be ecstatic. He's the biggest Seahawks fan there is. I brainwashed my kids. So... uh, a football team is out there on the field for one reason and one reason only, to win the game, right? It's the only reason they're out there, to win the game. And how do they win that game? They will huddle up, they will make a plan, and they will do one play. Then they huddle up again, they make another plan, and they do one play. That's exactly what we do here in Alcoholics Anonymous, and the game around here is one day without a drink, you're a big winner. And how do we do that one day? We run in here and we huddle up. You'll remember We're bodily, mentally different from our fellows. Break! And we go out there and we try a little of this and we try a little of that and we run right back in here. After that weekend, I got back to my ship and the one other sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous was waiting for me. His name was Bob W. He was 23 years old. He had 16 months of sobriety. That was the one other sober guy on my ship. 
I'm 25 years old. I've got about uh, 48 days of sobriety by the time I get back to my ship. This young man actually became my first sponsor. I didn't ask him. He just assigned himself, right? Because he had a sponsor that had just told him, like, the week before, it's time for you to start working with others. And he was going, oh, how am I supposed to do that? Not here I come. <laughs> right? I was like gold being delivered to him on a silver platter. Right? I was going to have to jump overboard to get away from this guy. My first two years of sobriety was spent still on that same ship. I had to make a lot of amends to the military. A lot. That's a whole other workshop or a story to tell on that level. Um, whenever that ship would pull into a port, my first sponsor, Bob, and I would find meetings wherever that ship was. And I know if you're young, I'm going to sound like your grandpa that said, I walked 10 miles to school. Right? There was no apps to find meetings. We had to get off that ship and go to find a phone booth, and we'd have to call a number, and we'd maybe just get a voicemail with an address, and we'd have to then find that address and find the meeting. You know, and some of my most precious memories of early sobriety were hunting meetings in foreign countries, going through that exercise, and, and out of a desperation to stay sober. When the ship was out at sea, uh, my first sponsor, that Bob, the young kid, he had a sponsor, this old man, about 60 with 30 years of sobriety, basically exactly who I am now, uh, used to give us both direction, right? And he was saying, you, you guys read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous to each other every night on that ship. So we met in the little battery shop in engine room number two every night at 6.30, and we would read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous back and forth. And he had no idea what he was doing. Thank God, step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message. It does not, we do not need to be experts. There's no one around here that's going to certify you as now you are ready to work with others. We just try. The magic is in the trying. And he would read, I would read, when, and he would read, and I would read, and he shared what little he knew. He probably mixed up Roland Hazard and Evie Thatcher. Who cares? Doesn't matter, right? We both had the experience that is necessary to find permanent sobriety. We both built the foundation for our sobriety, reading. It's like Alcoholics Anonymous in its purest form, the blind leading the blind. Two knuckleheads in the bottom of that ship in the middle of the Pacific Ocean in a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. One of most, my, you know, I've had so many valuable experiences in my life, but one of my most valuable, most memorable. I met his, he died, Bob died of cancer in 2011. And at his funeral in Portland, Oregon, six young men walk up to me. And they go, Bob made us promise that we would give this to you at the funeral. And I go, what? And they pull out this big book. And it's beat up, you know, all falling apart. You know the old story, a big book that's falling. The owner of a big book that's falling apart is usually not falling apart themselves. Right? And it's, it's all beat up. And there's rubber bands holding it together. And they go, here. And I go, what is that? And they, and they say, Bob said if you opened it, you'd know. And I open up that book. And it's the book from the ship. It's got both our sobriety dates in it. I got a first edition in my office. There's a fire. I'm grabbing that other one first. Two years sober, got an honorable discharge out of the Navy. That is the result of the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, an apparently merciful God, and a personnelman that lost half my file. That's how that happened. <laughs> one, of the, one of the amends that I could not make while I was still in the Navy was that, remember, my parents had paid for a bachelor's degree. I didn't have one. And that old, you know, when your sponsor, sponsor, when your sponsor, sponsor gets in, involved, it's never good news, is it? And he gave me instruction of, you have two choices, son. You either have to pay them back every single nickel they wasted on your education, or you have to go get what they paid for in the first place. 
So I got out, when I got out of the Navy, I found this university in this little town called Covina. And that's all I meant to, I packed up my car. I was still push starting the same car that I got sober in, little 68 Volkswagen hole in the floorboard. And I packed it up, puttered on up to Covina from San Diego. And uh, still remember on that freeway, puttering on, pop, 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 pop. you know, it's hitting on two cylinders and nice cars are going by, you know, the LA freeways, and, eh, eh, right? And all I hear is loser, loser. I'm like 27 years old. I'm two years sober and I'm a loser. I got to get a life. I've heard people in AA talk about having a life. I need one of those. You know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to go. I got to go to school. I got to take 21 units at a time. I got to get through this. I, gotta make, I have to be self-supporting. I got to work. I'm not going to have much time to go to meetings. You know, I'll go to meetings when I get a chance. And I, you know, I decide, well, I'll, I'll find out where the meetings are in the town where I'm at if I need one. But man, I got to get a life. I've heard people in AA say we need a life. And I pull into that, uh, of course, my my Bob still had to, had two more years to do in the Navy. Ship was going to Asia. I was needing to get another sponsor, but I wasn't thinking in those terms. I'm thinking I need a life. And I pull into this little AA clubhouse in Covina. We we affectionately and humbly call it the sobriety capital of the world. Just letting you know, we're the only ones that say it. Uh, and this, in this little meeting hall, the man making coffee, as I, I mentioned him earlier, and he had this medallion. Back in the 80s and 90s, old-timers wore these medallions, big circle and triangle with their date on it, and it said 1951. I looked at it, and I go, that means he was 10 years sober when I was born, for God's sake. And he said the very same things to me when I was uh, as the, that guy when I was fresh out of treatment, but Eddie Cochran was such a gentle man. He didn't say it aggressively, or he said, son, I've never seen you here before. What you doing? This time I had a much better answer. I said, sir, it's very nice to see meet, meet you. It's very nice to see your meeting hall here. Uh, <clears throat> I'm fresh out of the Navy. I'm two years sober. I'm going to the university here in town. Uh, you won't see me very often because I'm going to be busy. I uh, <laughs> got to take 21 units. I got to I got to work. I got to be self-supporting. So I'll stop by when I get a chance. And Eddie had this little laugh of, <laughs> and I, that's the first time of many that I heard that laugh when he'd be talking to me. And he said, oh, son, school and work are wonderful things for a young man to do. But, son, that's what we do in between meetings. What he was really giving me is one. Of, what he was really giving me that day was the secret to long-term sobriety comfortably. What he was really telling me is, son, you need to learn to live in Alcoholics Anonymous and visit the world. Please, son, do not try to hash it out there in the real world and visit us when convenient. And I got to tell you, that's the code I've been living by for the last 32 years when I met him at two years sober. First thing he told me to do was put new guys in my car. My life would get better. I didn't see how that could possibly be, but he was 10 years sober when I was born, so I did it. First night I put new guys in my car, my life got better. They could push start my car for me. <laughs> he didn't say how much better. He just said better. I will end with this at 7. I got one minute left. Aren't I good? I told you. She was wondering whether she needed to flash me the time card, and I said, no, I will be ending 8, 14, and 30 seconds. I'm right about there. I... uh 17 years sober, got married. Uh, we have two beautiful kids. Uh, the marriage did not work out. I know you've never heard of that in AA. All of you have been very successful in that area, I'm sure. Uh, but, you know, when we got divorced, uh, we realized we had a very, very big task. We both love those kids. We both love those kids from the bottom of our hearts. And she's a good mom. And she's been a good mom. We've been divorced for about 11 years now. And the reason I bring this up is those kids are now 14 and 17. If you're a Facebook friend of mine, you see them. I just, I'm, I'm irritating that way. And uh, it's like, I, I, 
I found this level of love for another human being by having kids. I don't think you need to have kids to experience this, but it's the easiest way is like I met who I would die for. I've never felt that way about another human being. I know the Navy made me raise my right hand and say that I would die for you, but I was really hoping it was not going to come to that, honestly. (laughs) And I I love other people. I really, really do. I love John. I love Mark. I really do. But if we're out at Starbucks later tonight and some guy comes in with a gun saying, one of you has got to go, I'd say, have you met my friend John? But if it was my kids, I would. If it meant they could live, I'd jump right in front of that. I've never felt that way. And this is the point of saying this. I would never trade my kids for the first drink. Never in a million years would I trade my kids for the first drink. However, I am alcoholic. I know what it means to be alcoholic. Although I would never trade them for the first drink, I would trade them for the second drink like that. So therefore, there is nothing more important than for me to stay in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous if I want to be a good father. And I got to tell you, that's my mission in life lately is to be a good dad. It really is. But I can't do that without you. So therefore, I always appreciate it when groups of Alcoholics Anonymous say, Carl, are you willing to give up a weekend, maybe one or two soccer games and come be with us? And I go, yeah, yeah. Because the only reason I get a privilege of being at a soccer game watching my kids or my son with golf and football is because of you guys. I can't do enough to pay you back. That would be literally impossible to pay Alcoholics Anonymous back. It can't be done. So anyway, I will end with that. It's a pleasure to be back in Seattle. I appreciate that I was asked to come up here and I had that last 36 hours that I told you of profound gratitude because I value times when I have that profound gratitude. It really is the genuine humility that they're talking, that Bill is talking about when it's centered in gratitude from the base of my soul. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.